The epistle of 1 Peter was written from a pastor's heart for believers who are scattered, suffering, and slandered. Peter's goal is to exhort believers to remain faithful while scattered and experiencing suffering amid a hostile world. Though living in a hostile world, we have a living hope which originates in the Father's foreknowledge, the Holy Spirit's sanctifying, and the Son's sprinkled blood. Furthermore, we are blessed and rejoicing amid our trials because we have a living hope and an expressible glorious joy. Peter also exhorted us to exhibit a lifestyle different from this hostile world. Such a lifestyle requires saturating our minds in God's Word, following the law of God, imitating the holiness of God, loving one another, and submitting to authorities. Additionally, Peter encouraged us to endure suffering by following the example of Christ, who did not return evil for evil. Now in 1 Peter 5, 10-14, Peter brings his epistle to a close by reminding his readers of God's grace and glory before saying goodbye. Let's take our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10-14. through 14. We're going to begin with verses 10-11, to 11, and we're going to see what Peter has to say about God's grace and glory. God's grace and glory. Verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The title God of all grace is used only here in Peter's epistle. It depicts God as the source and giver of grace. Now he is not merely the God of grace, but the God of all grace. That is, God gives grace in the fullest measure. 1 Peter 1, 2. The Old Testament prophets prophesied of the grace that would come. 1 Peter 1, 10. We are to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 13. We are recipients of the grace of life, 1 Peter 3, 7. As we use our spiritual gifts, we are serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, 1 Peter 4, 10. God gives his grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5, 5. And finally, Peter reveals that suffering is part of the true grace of God, 1 Peter 5, verse 12. Now, theologically, grace, or charis, is God's benevolence or loving kindness to the undeserving. God demonstrated grace by choosing to bless humanity with the offer of salvation, despite deserving the penalty of death and hell. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, See, God's grace delivers us from the penalty of death and hell. God's grace also delivers individuals from affliction and adversity. Psalm 6.4 Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. That's grace. Psalm 31, verses 7 and 8 I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness, grace, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul, and you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet 
in a large place. God's grace provides us with daily guidance. Psalm 143 verse 8. Let me hear your loving kindness, grace, in the morning. For I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk. For to you I lift up my soul. See, by God's grace, we as his people are comforted. Psalm 119.76 Oh, may your loving kindness, grace, comfort me according to your word to your servant. Now, contextually, God's grace is revealed in God's calling of believers to His eternal glory in Christ. That phrase, who called you, is reminiscent of earlier statements in this epistle. 1 Peter 1.15 The Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. 1 Peter 2.9 God has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.21 You have been called for this purpose. And 1 Peter 3.9 You were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This verb called, kaleo, refers to the effectual invitation or summons through which God brings people to Himself. And here the calling results in eternal glory. Now like grace and the term called, glory is an oft-used term in Peter's epistle. 1 Peter 1.7 Though tested by fire, the faith of believers will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.11 The Holy Spirit revealed to the Old Testament prophets the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 1 Peter 1.21, the Father raised the Son from the dead and gave him glory. We are to use our spiritual gifts to serve one another, according to 1 Peter 4.11, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And as we experience suffering, we can keep on rejoicing, according to 1 Peter 4.13, so that at the revelation of his glory, we may rejoice with exaltation. Furthermore, we are assured that in suffering, the spirit of glory and of God rests on us, 1 Peter 4.14. And elders who serve well will partake in the glory that is to be revealed and receive the unfading crown of glory, 1 Peter 5.1 and 4. Now the glory, doxa, to which Peter refers in verse 10, is the future reward and inheritance that we will receive after our time of suffering. As Peter has consistently stated, suffering is the path to glory. As revealed in 1 Peter 4.13, we will receive this glory, that is, our reward and inheritance, at the judgment seat of Christ. And that this glory is eternal means that we will enjoy our eternal reward and inheritance indefinitely. Now, Peter's use of the term eternal is significant in light of the opening phrase of verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while. A little while, oligos, is an adjective of temporal force indicating that our suffering is for a short time. This statement by Peter parallels his earlier statement in 1 Peter 1.6 where he informed us that we can have joy knowing that our suffering is only 
for a short time. And though the duration of suffering may be unknown, compared to eternity, it is short and it is temporary. Paul made a similar statement in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He follows this up with four verbs. The four verbs perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish explain how the God of all grace will exalt us at the proper time and enable us to resist Satan, as we saw back in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 9. Perfect, katartizo, means to equip in advance for a particular purpose. Now, in the context of being scattered and suffering, perfect indicates that God is going to equip us with the necessary tools to deal with the suffering. Confirm, sterizo, refers to making someone determined or resolute. Peter used the cognate term firm, stereos, in verse 9 to depict the rock-like determination or resolution that we must have for biblical doctrine. That God will confirm us means that he is going to empower us to be determined and resolute in doctrine. Strengthen, sathana-o, means to make more evil. It indicates that God is going to make us more than able to resist the devil. We do not need to fall victim to Satan's schemes. Establish, thamalea-o, refers to laying a foundation rock or stone. This verb portrays God as the firm foundation upon which we are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, as he said in 1 Peter 2.5. And that foundation stone is none other than the living, choice, precious cornerstone known as Jesus Christ. No doubt Peter recalled the words of Jesus in Matthew 7.25 regarding the house built on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Now this final note about God's grace and glory concludes with a doxology. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Note the term doxology is defined as a declaration of praise to God for his glory and power. Whereas in 1 Peter 4.11, the doxology addressed both the Father and Son, here it is addressed only to the God of all grace. Dominion, kratos, is the power to direct and govern, that is, sovereignty. Peter's point in underscoring God's sovereignty is to remind us that while the sovereigns or authorities of this world may scatter and slander us and cause us to suffer, it is God who is the ultimate sovereign. He is the true ruler of this world. And all that submit to his mighty hand will enter into his eternal glory. 1 Peter 5, 4, and 6. Interestingly, this is the only doxology in the New Testament in which another term such as glory or honor does not join the term dominion. Furthermore, the lack of the verb to be in the Greek text makes the phrase a dative of possession, meaning the text can be rendered as 
dominion belongs to him. Hence, God alone possesses sovereignty. Because God alone possesses sovereignty over all things, we can be confident that God can do what he has promised in verse 10. That is, perfect us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. And unlike the rulers of this world, God's sovereignty is forever and ever. You know, the phrase forever and ever appears to be a simple reference to eternity, but it literally translates as unto the ages of the ages. Of the phrase's 21 usages in the New Testament, it refers to the eternal kingdom. So, when it says that his dominion is forever and ever, his sovereignty is extended over the eternal kingdom. The term amen, derived from the Hebrew term ameth, means so let it be, indicating this doxology's truthfulness. Therefore, we can be assured that God is both willing and able to sustain us through our sufferings and bring us to glory by his grace. Now let's move on to 1 Peter 5, 12 to 14. And let's look at Peter's goodbye. Through Salvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Now, typical of apostolic goodbyes, Peter's closing comprises five parts. There's a commendation of an associate. There's a summary of the epistle. There's greetings. There's the holy kiss. There's the pronouncement of blessings of either grace or peace. And these five parts of the apostolic goodbye here in Peter's epistle can be seen in every New Testament epistle, whether it's John, Paul, Peter, etc. So let's begin with the commendation of Silvanus. In the first part of his goodbye, Peter commends his associate Silvanus. Now, Silvanus is commonly known as Silas, and the use of two names by an individual in the Greco-Roman culture was not uncommon. Consider Saul, also known as Paul. Silas was his Jewish name, where Silvanus was his Grecian name that was used among Gentiles. Silas is first mentioned in the scripture as a ruling elder at the church of Jerusalem, who accompanied Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with news from the Jerusalem council. Acts 15.22 Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, that's the apostles and elders, to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Later, he became a traveling elder, joining Paul on his second missionary journey, Acts 15.40. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed to, by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. During that journey, Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi, Acts 16.19 and 25. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. 
and the prisoners were listening to them. After being released, Silas partnered with Timothy to gather information about Thessalonica to report to Paul in Corinth, Acts 18.5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now the phrase, through Silvanus, in 1 Peter 1.12, denotes Silvanus's or Silas's involvement in both the writing and delivery of this epistle. Perhaps the phrase would be better rendered as, quote, written and sent with the help of Silas. In other words, Silvanus served as Peter's amanuensis, or scribe, a position he previously served Paul. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 3, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting. The we and us in the Thessalonian epistles signals plural authorship. Hence, Silas and Timothy were Paul's amanuenses who wrote down what Paul dictated. Peter's statement, I have written to you briefly, indicates that Silas recorded 1 Peter 1, 1 to 5.11 for Peter, and that Peter himself penned 1 Peter 5.12-14. Paul implores the identical phrase in Hebrews 13.22, I have written to you briefly, to indicate that his amanuensis wrote the epistle for him, but he personally penned the closing. On the other hand, Silas acted as the carrier of the letter. As such, Peter refers to him as a faithful brother. Faithful, pistos, has a twofold meaning. First, it indicates that he lived out what he believed. Second, the term indicates that Silas was a reliable co-worker who could be trusted. The phrase, for so I regard him, logizomai, means that Peter is fully convinced of Silas's faithfulness. Since Silas was delivering Peter's letter, Peter wanted his recipients to know that he could be trusted. And friends, we would do well to be like Silvanus, living out what we believe and being men and women who are reliable and trustworthy. Is that the kind of person you are? We move on now to the summary of the epistle. Next, Peter summarizes his purpose in writing this epistle, to exhort believers and testify of God's grace. Exhorting, parakaleo, means encouraging someone or urging them to a course of action. Christ referred to the Holy Spirit as the parakletos, describing the Spirit's ministry of coming alongside believers to exhort and encourage them. John fourteen sixteen. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Thus, Peter's purpose in writing was to come alongside his readers to exhort and encourage us. Testifying, 
epimartorio refers to providing firsthand eyewitness testimony to verify actual events. In light of their suffering, Peter yearned to encourage his readers to persevere. Instead of merely commanding them to persevere and bear up under the suffering, he encouraged them by pointing to the sufferings of Jesus. And what Peter shared was not hearsay or whispered down the lane. Instead, he wrote from his personal experiences with Jesus. What Peter saw in Jesus, how he suffered righteously, he now exhorted his readers to do the same. That's what we need to do, believer. We need to suffer righteously. Peter also encouraged them to, that just as Jesus was glorified after his suffering, so too will they be glorified. And that's true for us as well. Yes, we will go through suffering, but we too will be glorified. Now in the phrase, this is the true grace of God, the this, top ten, refers to suffering. Suffering is the true grace of God. Through his exhortation and testimony, Peter wanted them to know beyond a doubt that their suffering is the true grace of God. In other words, God brings suffering into our lives so that we can experience and understand his grace in new and unfathomable ways. Instead of raging and railing against God and our circumstances, we must stand firm in God's grace. That word stand firm, histeme means to hold our ground or to have a firm grip. As a command, stand firm informs us that we must live our lives with a hold on or a firm grip on God's grace. You see, in difficult times, God's grace is compassionate mercy and divine empowerment to enable us to persevere and please Him. Failure to persevere and please God amounts to apostasy, a theme Peter will take up in his next epistle. Following his commendation and summary, Peter next sends greetings. The greeting comes from she who is in Babylon and Mark. The interpreter must determine who she is. Some translations record the church that is at Babylon. However, the term church is supplied by the translators as it's not in the original Greek text. The Greek text reads, Hey on Babylonai. The he there is the feminine pronoun she. Because the phrase chosen together with you, sunakletas, meaning co-elect or fellow believers, also feminine, it underscores that the she is a person in this case. This she is introduced in Matthew 8.14 and traveled with Peter according to 1 Corinthians 9.5. Matthew 8.14, when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. 1 Corinthians 9.5, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? Thus, it can be concluded that she is Peter's wife. Peter's wife is sending greetings. Now, Peter is writing this epistle from Babylon. And while many believe that Babylon was code for Rome, there's no substantial proof to interpret Babylon as anything other than Babylon in Mesopotamia. Babylon in the first century AD was the center of Judaism outside of Jerusalem. 
It was from Babylon that the Babylonian Talmud was penned at this time. The Mark, to which Peter refers, is John Mark. And Peter was well acquainted with him as the church in Jerusalem met in the house of Mary, Mark's mother. Acts 12.12 And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Mary was the sister or aunt of Barnabas, making Mark either his cousin or nephew. Colossians 4.10 Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. This relationship underscores Barnabas' desire to bring Mark on his mission trip with Paul, Acts 13.5. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. And this explains why the rift between Barnabas and Paul about Mark going on another mission trip after he went AWOL, Acts 13.13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Acts 15.37-40. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Now Mark recovered from his failures, grew spiritually, and became a trusted companion of Paul. 2 Timothy 4.11 Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Philemon's 124, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. Now Peter's reference to Mark as my son means that Peter was key in either Mark's conversion or spiritual growth. Similar phraseology is used throughout the New Testament to refer to a convert or spiritual child. 1 Corinthians 4.15, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ... Yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Galatians 4.19, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. 1 Timothy 1.2, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philemon 1.10, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Now, like Mark... Spiritually immature believers are going to fail. But failure does not have to be the end. Spiritually immature believers, and that's where everybody starts as a babe in Christ, desperately need believers of spiritual maturity like Peter to nurture them as a spiritual parent so they can grow spiritually and be used of God. And those of you listening who believe yourselves to be spiritually mature ones, Instead of looking down on the spiritually immature, instead of wagging your tongue and shaking your head, I would encourage you to come alongside of that spiritually immature brother or sister and nurture them in the faith, adopt them as your spiritual child, help them to overcome their failure, help them to grow, and help them to become fit for ministry. Now this Mark was also the author of the gospel bearing his name. 
Interestingly, Mark's gospel was really Peter's account, which Mark recorded and delivered to the early church. To this end, Eusebius, AD 260-340, historian of the early church, recorded information about the gospel of Mark that had been revealed to Papias by the apostle John. Accordingly, he recorded that John stated, quote, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not indeed in order, whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterwards, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearers. But with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourses, so that Mark committed no error while he thus wrote some things as he remembered them. For he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of the things which he had heard, and not to state any of them falsely. Now the next to last part of Peter's closing is the holy kiss. Peter commands believers to greet one another with a kiss of love, a standard cultural greeting amongst families. For believers it demonstrated brotherly love, a common theme in this epistle. Paul called this greeting a holy kiss. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 16, 20, greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. That this kiss is holy demonstrates that those who share such a sanctified spiritual relationship and it should be underscored that this kiss was on the cheek and exchanged between those of the same sex. This was not a free pass to kiss someone else's spouse. Now how do we apply this command today? As with applying any culturally based command in scripture to present day, rules of interpretation must be followed. In this case, the hermeneutical rule states that some situations or commands pertain to cultural settings that are only partially similar to ours, and in which only the principles are transferable. In the Greco-Roman culture, the kiss was a display of familial endearment. However, in the modern Western culture, a kiss is not just a kiss. Many issues arise from a kiss in Western culture that did not pertain to Roman culture. And because a kiss is not the standard means of greeting people in the 21st century Western culture, as interpreters, we must ask if there is a similar cultural setting where the principle of this command could apply. Now, greetings still exist today, and there should be familial, familial endearment between the family of God. A cultural equivalent could be a holy handshake, or a holy fist bump, or a holy pat on the back, or at times a holy hug. But we as believers need to be sensitive to one another. Not everyone is comfortable being touched. Before running up to people and touching them, ask if they'd be okay with it. What is important is that we display actions which communicate our love for our Christian brother and sisters. Peter concludes the benediction by pronouncing a blessing of peace upon his readers. The term peace refers to freedom from worry. It translates the Hebrew term shalom, which is the standard greeting shared amongst Jewish people. Peter previously prayed that God would grant believers peace in the fullest measure, 1 Peter 1, 2. Scattered, slandered, suffering believers, we need peace. Not to prevent our suffering, but to be free of worry amid our suffering. This blessing of peace is not for all. It's only for those who are in Christ, that is believers. 
You see, to be in Christ means that our debt of sin has been canceled, our relationship with God restored, and our eternal destiny in heaven secured. Friends, we will suffer in this present world. And though we suffer, the God of all grace will bring us to glory. As such, we can trust in Him in the best of times as well as in the worst of times. Sadly, trust in God is not popular today. Even so-called Christians view trusting God as worthless counsel to those in crisis. Yet Peter exhorts believers to do just that, to trust in God at all times. Now how do we trust in God? An examination of 1 Peter provides four steps to trust in God. First, you must maintain a right perspective of suffering. Our suffering is only for a little while. The glory or inheritance that we will receive is going to be enjoyed for eternity. So are you maintaining a right perspective on suffering? Second, we must maintain a right perspective of God. He is the God of all grace. His grace is sufficient no matter the circumstance or situation. And He only withholds grace from those who refuse to humble themselves before Him. As well, God is sovereign over all things. As such, He's able and willing to sustain us through our sufferings and bring us to glory. So, I ask, what's your perspective on God? How do you view God? Do you view Him as the God of all grace? Do you view Him as the sovereign one? Third, we must maintain a right perspective of God's calling. God has called us to His eternal glory. That is, He has guaranteed us a future reward and inheritance in his presence. And knowing that our rewards and inheritances are secure, we can be confident that God will bring us through our sufferings to his glory, just as he did for Christ. So I ask, do you have a right perspective of God's calling? And finally, we must maintain a right perspective of God's purpose for trials. Trials are a means of purifying and preparing us for our royal priestly service throughout eternity. As well, trials are those times we experience God's work most in our lives. It's in those times of suffering that God perfects us, confirms us, strengthens, and establishes us. And so I ask, what's your perspective on God's purpose for your trials? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for allowing us to go through this study of 1 Peter. And Father, there has been much in this short book. And yet, Father, whether it's instructions on holiness or submission or love, grace or glory, Father, it's all for our good. Lord, you're right up front in this epistle. We're going to suffer. But... As we go through suffering, you will bring us to the other side and glorify us. There is an end to the suffering. There is hope beyond the difficulty that we go through in this daily world. Father, Lord, we don't know what tomorrow holds. But as we know, you hold the future. And Lord, you have a purpose in all things. You've called us, not condemned us. And I thank and praise you for that. Lord, I pray that we could see your mighty hand at work in our lives. That, Lord, we can look back over the weeks and months, even the years, and see those times when you perfect us, when you've confirmed us, when you've strengthened us, 
when you've established us. And so, Lord, I ask a blessing on each one who's listened. I ask a blessing on each one who has gone through this course of study. That, Father, as they go through their trials, as they go through their troubles, as they go through their tribulations, that, Father God, they might not lose hope. That, Lord, they'd be reminded of the living hope that they have been given and that is eternally secure. That, Lord, they might not despair, but, Lord, rather, that they will follow the example of your Son, who, when reviled, reviled not. That, Lord, when times come when we must submit to those in authority over us, rather than chafe under their heavy hand, we might, like Christ, not revile when reviled, but, Lord, rather hold our peace. Lord, I thank you that you've given us peace. You've given us freedom from worry. All we have to do is cast it on you. And so, Father, help us to that end. We pray in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.